0: Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. This week, we are continuing our more frequent coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on the Horn of Africa. I'm especially delighted to welcome today's guest, Kenyan diplomat, Ambassador Mahbub Malim. For over a decade, from 2008 to 2019, Ambassador Malim served as the Executive Secretary of ECAD, the Horn of Africa's regional bloc. And he's here today to talk about how the virus is impacting diplomacy throughout the region, and if and how the region can muster a collective response to this pandemic. Ambassador, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a privilege uh, to, to be invited and to take part in this discussion.
0: Ambassador, you know this region inside and out, so I'm wondering how vulnerable you see the Horn of Africa is right now to this pandemic, both from a public health perspective, but also politically.
1: Uh, I I see this region as, uh, at this point in time, uh, having its uh, already existing vulnerability uh, much more upscale than it was before. And I talk about before because this region has always had uh, very many Uh, emergency-related, particularly weather-related emergencies all the time and some diseases. So really, this time, I think we are definitely worried and concerned. And I think uh, the vulnerability is definitely uh, being tested.
0: Right. Now, like we mentioned, uh, and as everyone, I think, is, is painfully aware in the context of the Horn of Africa, is that the disease poses not just a threat from a public health perspective, but also a political perspective, I'm wondering, uh, when you scan around the region, what worries you the most in terms of the potential political effects of this virus?
1: Yes, uh, you're right. This, this virus has, uh, has, diff- has uh, serious governance and security and, and also, of course, uh, political implication. Uh, the first one I can think about is uh, the disruption of uh, you know, the de- democratic systems that I see uh, developing in our region. Uh, for example, there is already a country like Ethiopia uh, that has taken the cue uh, and rightfully so, in uh, postponing the elections, for example, and I'm sure it's just a question of time. Uh, a lot of discussions is going on in Somalia. I have not been privy to it, but I do know differently that we are talking about it. We, are, we probably will see uh, Somalia following suit. Uh, this, of, this disposition, of course, is uh, – is, is, uh, uh, we encourage such a, such a dispensation. Uh, due to the disease, but you see you can imagine the uh, the um, lack of clear understanding of the timelines if, if that is if that's questioned and it becomes uh, something that uh, disrupts uh, social order uh, in future uh, would be something that probably would uh, would, would would have serious uh, political implications in future for example uh, so these things are of course things that are direct results of political implications and regional stability for for the disease. But also, there is, we also see uh, uh, disruption of some critical diplomatic uh, efforts in the region. Uh, for example, recently there was a, a trilateral summit that was supposed to take place between Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia. So that trilateral summit summit was cancelled; was was suspended rather uh, because of the disease. So this is something that I see also uh, will continue. Repeating itself along other fronts that require high-level consultations, which is not taking place right now because of the disease, but also our own governments becoming uh, inward-looking. Uh, governments uh, have their hands full, and everything is about internal issues and about discussions and about curfew and about arrests for those who break it and about uh, what's going to happen to people. So, a lot of uh, multilateral and uh, bilateral discussions. Uh, that 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 goes on every day, and that's important for countries to politically stay stable is being undermined.
0: EGAD, you know, as you mentioned, tried to find a way of continuing to to work at a summit level uh, despite the restrictions um, and all the inward facing that you've uh, mentioned. Um, I think you know one of the stark things about this virus is that it's uh, uh, is that it appears to to really isolate. Um People from each other, but also countries from each other, even though it's it's obviously a threat that all of humanity faces collectively. You know we see countries shut down, leaders can't meet in person, borders close. I'm wondering what you think regional blocks like EGAD can realistically do to address this challenge um it seems like it seems like the 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 virus is threatening you know, not just lives, but also in a certain way, the multilateral institutions that were set up to deal with crises like these. And you hear some more hopeful voices saying maybe this crisis could bring countries together because it's something we all face collectively, but, but
1: how? Okay, well, here there are two issues here. There's, of course, the, uh, the regional component, which I'm sure is what you want me to address, but also the in-country uh, programs, there are two sets of this in the region. One is, of course, the vulnerable groups, and there is, in my view, uh, a very uh, uh, you know comprehensive contingency systems that exist that can be used, that can act as uh, shelf plans that can be operationalized uh, any minute. That that some of the operas- 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 operationalization has been going on, and also in as far as the um, over and above this framework, uh, th- there has also been. Um, And this was as a result of the emergencies that we've had before, which was mainly weather-related. We have a very uh, comprehensive resilience agenda uh, in the region. It's called IDDRSI, EGAD Drought and Disaster Resilience and Sustainability Initiative. Uh, This has been going on for a while. Um, I'm sure, uh, looking at the heads of state's recent uh, summit, uh, a little little bit of... um, uh, you know, um, retuning on some of the ongoing programs would address uh, some of the issues that are required to be to be addressed in the in the, in the COVID uh, crisis, but also recently last year, towards the end of last year, a ten billion US dollar program was uh, lodged uh, through membership by the countries, the EU, the African Development Bank, and the, and the World Bank, and here again that means there is already a port of funds that can be called on, uh, can be called upon, uh, that I think also would, would, at this time, differently be able to be available uh, on a faster basis than it would be before. But also, uh, as a framework of, of using these funds and on running on what people require to be assisted with, there are existing cross-border programs already uh, ongoing. In about six, six or seven cross-border uh, programs that are up and running in the IGA region, So those are the places that require uh, to be used as a launching pads. The money, I think, is available. The framework is available for both groups. So I think this is something that requires a special uh, trigger. And I think the trigger now is already there through the heads of states' uh, recent consultation. So I think we have the systems to go. We are lucky we have had this mechanism put in place a long time ago, and they seem to be paying uh, dividends now. Do you have thoughts on how
0: can the region protect refugees um, as well as the other uh, displaced populations affected by conflict? Because, of course, as you mentioned, these, these populations, they live in very close quarters and already... Very, very vulnerable to to this disease. So, ha- have you heard conversations within the region about specifically how how they can try to prevent the spread to these camps, but also what would happen if if an outbreak occurred in one of these refugee camps or IDP camps?
1: Of course, as I said, I, I have left IGAD now, so really I'm not in the middle of this, but I do know uh, I, I do know that there is definitely a consideration on. Uh, the social impact of uh, of the disease, the overcrowding in the in the in the slum areas and in the refugees and refugee camps, for example, and then definitely look at the issue of water. Uh, I'm sure there's there's need to upgrade the water and sanitation systems in uh, those those areas. Uh, and then uh, within the camps, there are also vulnerable groups like children and women and children and uh, and, and the and the disabled. Uh, look at what specifically can be done. Uh, to address those groups, to make it much more better for them to live through this uh, difficult time. Uh, there is already um, an understanding that several uh, children who already have the disease. One of them was announced to to have died in Nairobi yesterday, and the doctors are talking about the fact that ha- had had the child had a proper maternal child health care before, uh, probably the child would survive. So. How can we upgrade some of the health facilities now, so that if for those who get the disease, to prevent, but even those who get them, they they are a bit more the chances for them to be uh, to to be stronger to survive with is higher. So there's a couple of things that uh, people on the ground can look at and uh, and do.
0: Great. Now we we've mentioned a few times the teleconference summit that that did occur uh, between. EGAD, heads of states, uh, where they where they promised to, to formulate a regional response strategy. Um, and um, among the things I think that the region will be will be focusing on, uh, will be trying to coordinate efforts to uh, receive financial assistance. And you've even seen campaigns for debt relief start. What sort of environment do you expect uh, for the Horn of African countries as they approach donors who are facing their own you know, crises from these pandemics at home and yet will be having uh, many poorer nations around the world coming and, and asking for support? Um, do you, have, you got, have you heard any indication of how, this, how these appeals for funding are likely to go?
1: Well, I, I of course, definitely... Um... The declaration talks about um, coordination, which are, which a lot of us take for granted, which is a very difficult thing to do and needs a lot of commitment. It's easier said than done. So that really is very, uh, in my view, is uh, quite promising. Uh, it talks about uh, um, uh, forming uh, a, 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 an emergency fund. And I remember reading that uh, president of Kenya um, already uh, pledged, uh, support in, the, in that basket. Uh, I also do know, as I said earlier, there are different uh, already financing instruments that are already current, that's ongoing, that's already in the pipeline.
0: I'm curious uh, why you think that we haven't seen more efforts coordinated through some of these multilateral institutions like EGAD, but not only EGAD, the African Union um, even there's been criticism that the United Nations uh, isn't really leading on this. I think one notable thing was the donation that that came from Jack Ma, the Chinese entrepreneur, where he donated 20,000 test kits and 100,000 masks, I believe, to every African nation. That, that was also done not you know, really through uh, an institution, but was but was uh, but was largely done through the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed. Something that we hear quite a bit is that there, you know, and that we see quite a bit, uh, not just in response to this pandemic, but more broadly, is a sort of crisis of multilateralism, um, and that applies to the region. Also, we've seen a lot of foreign powers uh, choose to to engage with governments directly, often instead of instead of going through some of the multilateral institutions, such as EGAD, the African Union. Uh, for instance, we saw a lot of that regarding uh, the Sudanese political transition, where a lot of the efforts uh, were, were, were done sort of bilaterally instead of through the region. And it seems like in the course of the response to this pandemic so far, we've sort of seen that accelerated um, and I use, the, I use the Jack Ma donation as an example of where it seems to have gone sort of directly through the head of state um, on the Ethiopian side, and then to the countries directly.
1: So uh, the question that um, some of the um, finance agencies or some of the uh, supporting countries talk to specific countries directly, I really do not see it as a, as, as, as a means that bypasses uh, regional mechanisms. Uh, to the contrary, I see it's, an, and it's a, an, an immediate support for an immediate need. However, uh, of course, the, the regional content cannot be uh, bypassed and, and must also be supported. And, and these uh, uh, frameworks and existing finances that I've talked about uh, differently will, st- will get the, the ball rolling for, for now. Uh, but a lot of the work has to be done in each of the countries as it stands now, just like all other emergencies before, even though we have not seen one with this kind of magnitude uh, ever.
0: Ambassador, one of, the, one of the questions regarding this crisis that I see, and you mentioned it briefly before, is that essentially face-to-face diplomacy has shut down across the region. You mentioned the tripartite summit between Kenya, Somalia and Ethiopia that's been delayed. Of course, we've seen some teleconferencing take place um, by video, but in some cases, that hasn't been enough. We've seen peace talks in South Sudan with some of these holdout groups who hadn't signed the original peace deal that were taking place in Rome. Those have been basically postponed because, because of the challenges of doing some of these peace talks and teleconferencing. I'm just wondering, from your deep experience dealing with these, with these political negotiations and peace talks, what are the limits to to trying to conduct uh, some of these sensitive talks by video instead of face-to-face. I'm wondering if you think, essentially, we'll see diplomacy, you know, go through a period of a bit of a deep freeze because some of these sort of sensitive negotiations and peace talks can't really take place.
1: No, I, I, uh, I, I entirely, entirely agree with you 100% that uh, uh, negotiations, discussions, uh, normally has uh, an up and down. It has its own amplitude. Uh, a lot of times, probably when people sit for a very long time, say eight, nine hours, probably only have had uh, an hour or two of uh, uh, beneficial discussions. The rest is either to cool each other or just walk around or call for a break. Uh, so to do the, the negotiations and mediation and to really how uh, people um, understand, each other's red lines, uh, you know, on teleconferencing is not easy. And, and that's why I mentioned uh, the fact that, uh, in my view, I think this has uh, disrupted some critical diplomatic uh, efforts.
0: What are some of the other crises or issues in the region that you think will be most affected by this that do require this sort of regional diplomacy? Well, you see, uh, we, we,
1: we had uh, all these successes here and there. For example, the South Sudan issue you just mentioned. Uh, requires uh, some follow-ups. Um, this this cannot be done uh, over 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 teleconferencing. Uh, Sudan is making uh, a lot of progress in its own internal uh, you know um, in, internal discussions with with, with the the, the and other groups and, and some of the uh, you know how to operationalize uh, some of the decisions so that the the the, the transitional period the transitional period ends. Uh, and now this is also been supported by, uh, generally by eager member countries that require uh, frequent meetings. I talked to the South Sudan ambassador, Iger ambassador to South Sudan last night, and he's sitting, he's also in a lockdown in, uh, in uh, Addis Ababa. Uh, ambassador Guyo, who is our special envoy for Somalia and also the Red, the Red Sea of the Gulf, is, is quarantined in a hotel in Nairobi after having come from a trip in Europe. And can't leave that hotel the next fourteen days. Uh, so a lot of things that record, this invoice should have been uh, moving about now, and should, should have been uh, discussing with people, and should have had a higher level engagement already. So none of this going on.
0: One of the things that you know worries me quite a bit about that, and I imagine worries you as well, is that. If we do see political crises that arise, either by themselves or because of this pandemic, the sort of regional peace and security apparatus that's there to to kickstart negotiations might have a hard time kicking in if people are quarantined, if people can't travel, and if we're not able to do face-to-face negotiations.
1: But precisely, precisely, 100%. That's already happening. Uh, for example, the African Union, I was reading a document yesterday where the African Union has... Uh, uh, called off all the African Union meetings. Uh, they have postponed the uh, deployment of uh, forces in, forces in the Sahel, which was almost ready. Uh, they cannot um, do the trans- the normal uh, uh, replacements for the forces in Darfur. Uh, they can't do what they were supposed to do in AU. I mean, in uh, in, in South Sudan, uh, IGAD had similar uh, examples. I just mentioned some to you. So you you are you are very right. This is we are getting into. Uh, a very very dangerous time uh, in our life. Uh, And we have to keep our fingers crossed and become innovative, look at some of the frameworks that exist, how much of that can we, uh, 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 is there any low-hanging fruit anywhere that we can cling on, for example, and things like those. So we have to really be thinking much different than we ever thought it would be required to do at this time.
0: Yeah, and one thing about a pandemic is that, of course, the entire world will need to work together because even if they get the virus under control in some parts of the world, they'll have to bring the virus under control in all parts of the world to fully end the pandemic. So, of course, although everyone's looking internally now, if you wanted to be hopeful, you could say that the world is you know, ramping up production of ventilators and masks. They're gaining experience how to beat the disease um, so if you know if African nations can use the benefit of its of its lag in the outbreak itself to push back its peak far enough, you know maybe it'll buy enough time for other countries uh, to get their own outbreaks under control, you know, and then we might start to see some of the assistance really flow in. Uh, if 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 African nations are not able to avert the outbreak itself, but at least push back its its peak as far as possible. No,
1: that, that's correct. That's correct. I, I'm sure. We are, we are all we're all learning from what has happened in other places in the world uh, We know the dangers involved uh, We see some of the serious shortages uh, in, in, in some of the highly required um, items of support required for the disease control right now is the same everywhere here in Africa um, and therefore yes I think uh, the fact that there has been a lag between when it hit here and when it hit elsewhere uh, that that's a positive. Uh, it, it plays positively into what each of our countries can do, uh, having learned from what has happened elsewhere. But I said, at the end of the day, again, a lot of uh, resources required of this, and he, listening to some of the ministers of finance make declarations, I think the countries are very serious about uh, what they can do uh, on their own first, uh, and then look at uh, the, the multilaterals and see what can come uh, from other places so that... Um, Communities and people who nest, no, normally are not uh, who, who normally uh, slip through the fingers of the planning process of each of the countries; those who are the border, border towns, for example, and border areas uh, can be reached and can also be can also be, uh, can also be uh, supported accordingly.
0: Yeah. Now, now, one more question, since we have you on, which is less related to the pandemic, but of course, given how long you served the region as Executive Secretary of EGAD. Um, I wanted to to ask you about EGAD's future itself and how you see it. Um, Among the discussions that we're part of, and I'm sure that you've been part of, some people in the region see EGAD as sort of losing some of the relevance it used to have. You have, you know, uh, countries in the horn discussing, forming new blocks of countries that would be smaller than EGAD. Um, You have Ethiopia, which for a long time, you know, was the country that led and largely shaped EGAD. Uh, You know, they're no longer chair, and the new prime minister appears less interested in EGAD than his predecessors. I'm wondering, um, you know, how do you see EGAD's future, and do you think regional leaders continue to really back it?
1: Well, I I, I actually think that... uh First and foremost, I'm sure that if IGAD did not exist today, I'm pretty sure that somebody would be intelligent enough to, to request that it's created. So if it was not here, it would have had to be created. That, that I, can, I can assure you, because I, I know what it does, I know what it can do, and I know the number of times it has basically supported each of the country individually and collectively. So I think IGAD is not going to go anywhere. Secondly, there has been a discussion in IGAD uh, while I was there uh, that uh, if we really are talking about a uh, continental free trade area, we're talking about um, you know, trade, we're talking about uh, uh, you know, common market and issues like those, then there was no reason to have two independent uh, regional organizations in the name of IGAD and East African community. And in fact, there was a discussion that IGAD and East African community merge uh, to form a bigger uh, block. So, we didn't make much progress, but that discussion has always been on. But now, from the question you ask and the, and the discussion that has been going on, uh, in my view, it is legitimate for countries to, depending on, on what specifically they require for each other, have their own internal bilateral or trilateral. However, <coughs> if you look at the current structures of each of these countries, you look at the economies of these countries, you look at uh, the geopolitics; uh, you can tell clearly that um, at the end of the day, definitely, IGAD uh, is going to be much more stronger. So, I I really do not see any um, uh, dent in the future of IGAD. I see IGAD is going to be uh, much more stronger because as some of these discussions go on, the relevance of IGAD and what it can, it can do uh, will will be much more clear. Uh, to probably some of the political discussions right now,
0: Ambassador. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We look forward to speaking with you again in the future.
1: It's a privilege, and I thank you so much. And I'm available, of course. Uh, when you leave an office, the 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 best you can do is uh, you know tell people what you know.
0: Thanks all for listening and for bearing with us as we all record ourselves remotely. We will be back next week with another episode of our special COVID-19 coverage. If there's anything you'd like us to cover during this time, you can find me on Twitter at Alan Boswell. The Horn is a production of International Crisis Group. You can read our reports at crisisgroup.org. This episode was produced by Mae Francis.